Hello, welcome everybody. Um, I hope everybody is as excited as I am to be attending this event, which is hosted by the Department of Media at LSE, Mothering and Work, Mothering as Work. You can see on the slide here, the hashtag is LSE Media if you'd like to tweet during the event. Um, this event was organized and it meant, was meant to run last year and we had to cancel it because of COVID. Um, so how better to celebrate finally being able to come together and talk, but, but by focusing on COVID as well. Um, I'm going to introduce you to the speakers today and um, give you a little bit of an idea of how the seminar is organized and uh, just how the structure of the webinar will work. Um, the first speaker that you will hear today is Jess Bremer, who has recently returned to work from maternity leave. And that's one of the good things about having canceled the event before. We wouldn't have had Jess with us otherwise. Uh, Jess is the editor-in-chief of HuffPost UK. She was previously deputy editor of BBC Newsnight and led the program's award-winning coverage of the Grenfell Tower disaster and other major news events. Prior to that, she was a news producer at ITN. Uh, after beginning her career at BBC Question Time, one of my favorite programs, she is an LSE alum and obtained her degree in international history from LSE. So welcome back to LSE, Jess. Uh, the second speaker today is Sarah Knott, um, and Sarah is Sally M. Rayhard Professor of History at Indiana University and a fellow of the Kinsey Institute. Uh, among her publications, she's author of Mother, an Unconventional History, which I would really recommend to everybody, particularly, and I say this about Shan Shani's book as well, the audio version is fantastic. It's one of the best audiobooks I've ever heard. The, the reader's amazing. Um, and she's co-editor of Mothering's Many Labors. Uh, Sarah's served as an editor of the American Historical Review, uh, the American Historical Association's flagship journal, and she sits on the editorial board of past and present. She's held many fellowships, including from the Andrew Mellon Foundation, the Rothermere American Institute, and the Oxford Center for Life Writing. Uh, our third speaker today is LSE's own Shami Orgad. She's professor in the Department of Media and Communications at LSE. Uh, Shani's research interests include gender inequality, migration, feminism, and media narratives. She's author of numerous journal articles, blogs, and five books. Um, the most recent one, and the one I was just saying, is a fantastic audiobook, is Heading Home, Motherhood, Work, and the Failed Promise of Equality. Uh, but she's also written Caring in Crisis, Humanitarianism and the Public, Humanitarianism, the Public and NGOs, and the confidence culture uh, with Roz Gill. Um, Shani is um, the person who initiated this webinar and I just wanted to extend my thanks to her for organizing what is definitely going to be a fantastic conversation. Um, there is a Q&A box in the webinar and you're welcome to post questions anytime. 
The event will begin with um, the speakers doing short presentations and responding to each other, and then we'll open it up to Q&A. To prepare for the event, uh, the panel were asked to consider three questions related to um, their work, but also into incorporating some more recent issues to do with COVID. What has the pandemic highlighted in relation to mothering, specifically the co-location of waged work and social reproductive work? How can we tell a story of maternal labor in the past in the absence of data? And how does it relate to mothering in contemporary times? And what does it mean to study mothering today in the context of intensified neoliberalism? Uh, all weighty, timely, and hugely policy relevant questions. And Jess agreed to uh, kick us off. Thanks very much. Um, and thanks so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this discussion. You'll notice that I'm the one person on this fantastic panel that doesn't have professor in front of my name. Uh, I'm a journalist and uh, I run HuffPost UK, which is a news website. Um, we try very hard to elevate voices around policy conversations that don't always get heard. Um, and we've done a lot of work through the COVID pandemic around motherhood um, and, and women in general, because we know um, that they've been hit particularly hard by all the impacts of the pandemic. But I'm here mainly, um, I think, for my own experience, because I was a COVID mother, that um, terrible <laughs> moniker that um, has been given to women who gave birth during the pandemic. I had my baby uh, on the 1st of May in what we then thought was the height of COVID, um, certainly in London. It's since, of course, surpassed that with this dreadful uh, second wave. Um, and it was... I mean, motherhood is always a unique experience. It was my first baby, but it was um, a particularly bizarre experience. Uh, we had quite a lot of support in the run-up to the birth, but um, the postnatal support basically disappeared. Um, all the support you would normally get from the state, midwife visits, GPs, health visitors, I've never met my health visitor, that all disappeared. And at the same time, we lost any chance to have any support from our families who were shielding. Um, my experience was... Um, sadly replicated many, many, many times in this country um, and for far longer. It's still happening now to women who are um, becoming mothers, um, either for the first or, or, or second, third times um, during this pandemic. And it's it's raised a number of really interesting issues, I think, for women in that situation, um, all of which I'm looking forward to getting into later today. I think, having gone back to work, um, that, that in itself has thrown up a new set of issues that have been sort of refracted through a COVID lens um, and where campaigners for a long time, groups like Pregnant Men Screwed have been asking for more flexible working and more home working um, for, for parents, but for mothers in particular, where it helps them in their lives. Now that it's been forced on us, I think it's, it's, heightened so many things um, that either didn't weren't there before or were there and were more manageable when being at home was one section of motherhood and I've certainly found um, that that identity shift that women go through after maternity leave particularly a maternity leave which for many mothers during Covid was a very intense very lonely experience a lot of the time, all you could do was literally walk the streets. There were no baby classes, none of the usual support networks. And I think 
all of the things that women usually use to kind of ease themselves back into that new identity of working mother when they go back to work outside of the house, having um, you know done a lot of work within the home um, during their maternity leave, have gone. You, you don't have the geographical distance of a commute or the time of a commute to kind of have a moment to yourself when you're not mothering or when you're not working for paid work. Um, and I think all of the small devices, like, I mean, I'm dressed for work. I've just finished my working day. I've chosen to do that because it's one of the small ways in which I can still gain some control over my identity, even though I'm effectively in the same location as I spent eight months simply only doing mothering work. And I think one of the things I'll be really interested to get into in this discussion is the long-term impact of mothers doing all of their living within the domestic sphere where traditionally that's been where the mothering's been happening. Um, it's something that we've explored a lot um, at HuffPost through our work. We, we did a piece today about parents feeling claustrophobic, um, but I think we're only really now beginning to see the impact of that. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll be really interested in this discussion to get some context for my own experience, but also um, to get a sense of the long-term policy implications for what's happened to mothers during this pandemic, but also what we want to ask policymakers for, because I think this will have been going on for so long now um, that we will have solidified some of our notions of mothering, um, of parenting, yes, but of mothering specifically. Um, and I, I'd be really interested to hear um, from the rest of the panel and from the audience what we think we want policymakers um, to offer mothers in this situation. Thank you very much, Jess. Um, I think the um, co-location of re social reproductive work and paid work and trying to juggle that is really interesting. Um, the fantasy of the, um, I never say this properly, mumpreneur, is that right? Or is there an entrepart in that? Shani talks about that in her book in a really interesting way, this idea of being of how that would be so ideal to be able to do. And it's really interesting that when confronted with having to do it, I think it got a little bit demystified. <laughs> um, so, and trying to, to figure out how to, to work that out is really quite tricky. Um, I think it's also really interesting how... Um, it is just taken for granted that it is a mothering issue. That men can somehow carve off a bit of space in the home more easily um, in ways that. Uh, yeah, I mean, a bit of explanation. We saw that this week, didn't we, when Rishi Sunak. Um, mm -hmm you know, said, we, we all owe mums a great debt of gratitude. And, and today, um, the government withdrew an advert, which was one of the stay at home adverts that was, I don't know if anyone saw it, it was a graphic of the sort of cross section of a home, there was a man sitting on the sofa, a sort of graphic cartoon of a man sitting on the sofa. And then in the other rooms, there were women doing housework. Mm. And it's just extraordinary. Tells you a lot about how many women are in the room when those sorts of mm. um, campaigns get signed off. I, I'm probably stepping on your toes, Shani, but I was also thinking about um, in, in her book, she talks about how um, when men do work at home, they're often uh, really disruptive because they want to be left alone. 
and they don't want noise in the kitchen and they don't want this and, and the, the ability to claim space in the domestic sphere and to separate that off seems to be gendered in ways that are really difficult to tackle and they create problems for policy because the home is so often seen as a private sphere. Um, sorry, I'm stepping on your toes, Shani. You can just see what a fan I am of your book. Um, our next speaker is Sarah, who um, I, I, one of the things I hope that you'll talk about a little bit is um, your approach to anecdotes, mm. which um, also related to me a little bit about um, a, a very interesting autoethnographic method um, being brought to history. It was just a, a really nice method. And I think it relates very much to kind of the disrupted schedule and some of what Jess was talking about. Thank you, Wendy, that's terrific. And, um, and thank you, Jess, for starting us off on such a moving footing. That seems to me exactly right, that in a conversation of this kind, we need to be able to both hold onto the usually very cool topic of work and the very warm topic of maternity, right? And sort of do those two things together. So you really set a tone for us, that I think is really helpful. Um, all right, then I will start where Wendy, uh, where Wendy handed me the baton, which was to say, few words about uh, being the author of Mother and Unconventional History. Um, so that's a book um, that uh, came out uh, in 2019, which now, of course, feels like a decade ago, um, and came very much out of uh, what Jess just called um, the, the context of her own experiences. Uh, so here I was, a feminist historian, uh, and suddenly with an infant, and suddenly astonished that I didn't already have at hand the history of such experiences. And being very interested to think about, well, uh, if I lack that, what does one do to address it? Um, so the book came very much out of the exact moment that Jess is living through right now. Um, so I'm a historian, traditionally, usually I'm a historian of early America. And so when I asked the question, how do you give a history to pregnancy, birth and the encounter with an infant? So I was very much focused on that early maternity. How do you give that history? I turned... Um, a really wide historical expanse. I turn to the history of Britain and North America since the 17th century. Right? So this is a very long durée history, if you like. Um, and I knew that in doing that, I would be um, drawing on many different kinds of society, right? So not just um, 20th century Britain or 20th century United States, but also the worlds of Native American peoples like the Cree or the Ojibwe, uh, the worlds of enslaved men and women on plantations in places like South Carolina or Virginia, the worlds of white tenant farmers, uh, tenement dwellers in Liverpool and London, uh, the worlds of women's liberationists in London and San Francisco. So I very deliberately cast my net wide. And one of the reasons I did so was exactly what Wendy pointed out, which is there's a data problem when one tries to give a history to the encounter with an infant, to mothering a, a small child, right? But if, uh, as I could do, uh, one casts one net through scholarship in history and demography and sociology, uh, thinking about Native American oral traditions, for example, or slave narratives or the tiny shards of information that you can get from government reports or reformers reports, what you come up with invariably are fragments. Right? Uh, before the 20th century, really, what we have in terms of a historical record about mothering infants is nothing more than a hundred way of fragments. And so my dilemma as a scholar was what to do, you know, how to confront that dilemma of, of the mere fragment. Well, of course, there are great historiographical traditions that have 
grappled with exactly this, most notably uh, black women's history and the history of slavery. So I, I had rich, fertile ground to draw on there. Uh, what I came up with was a form of research and writing that really serializes anecdote, juxtaposes anecdote, accumulates anecdote as a form of reliable data, right? So that I treated the anecdote as inherently adequate, it's inherently enough, and I, and I, I put those anecdotes next to one another in order to um, create a history of variety, a history uh, that could pluralize and could specify the remarkable range of mothering activities and experiences in the past. Um, so you can hear there there's a feminist agenda about denaturalizing, de-universalizing what maternity is uh, in the first place. And then wedded to that um, anecdotal approach, right, that, deliberate, that deliberately pluralizing and specifying approach um, was um, what I've actually come to call retrospectively presencing. That is to say, I put myself in the text. I, I, I created a narrator who was present in the text that was me, or at least some version of me, um, perhaps a little less sleep deprived. Um, and what I found in so doing was that my initial intent, which was that I would um, wed memoir and history as a means of reaching readers, um, while that initial intent was very important to me and, and um, addressing that academic but also public audience was important to me, what I found was that that, that approach, that presencing actually transformed the interpretation itself. It enabled me to thematize topics like sleeplessness or topics like the experience of being continually interrupted that I think I would not have arrived at otherwise. And that may, may, I mean, how do you give a history to the experience of being continually interrupted? It's just not a question anyone had asked, right? And yet, frankly, uh, with a six month old or a nine month old, it was an incredibly pressing question to me. This is not in fact a universal experience to be continually interrupted. Um, how do we give that a history? Uh, it's not a continuous and inevitable history of sleeplessness. Uh, how do we give a history to the maternal night? I found those incredibly compelling questions. Uh, and it was a book that was extremely joyful as well as demanding in the research and in the writing. So I hope that gives uh, some kind of response to Wendy's query. And I'm, I'm thrilled, Wendy, that you enjoyed the audio book because one of the most pleasant moments in my life was sitting on my bed with my two then slightly old children, listening to different uh, potential uh, actors and choosing who was going to be me among them, which is quite a, an unusual experience for a scholar and I have to say much to be recommended. Um, I thought it would be useful though in the context of our conversation, not just to talk about um, that, that question of data, right? Of what it might mean to do qualitative research as a historian and someone thinking about mothering as work. Um, I thought I'd also try and sort of circle some of that back to this question that we, we were asking ourselves about what the pandemic might've highlighted uh, about mothering in the here and now. And obviously that isn't an issue that was on my radar in 2019, but it is an issue that's been placed back on it. And I've, I've um, been actually quite surprised at the extent to which my experience, uh, the experience that's documented in the book feels newly prescient in um, a scene in which my mothering uh, and my workplace are, bit, are newly co-located with older children. And some of that's to do with the extraordinary um, identity shift that we might all have gone through in living through a historical event of this kind, right? So let me be a bit more precise about that. Um, what Jess described, right, the identity shift that she described having had to navigate these last months 
of anthropologists call that matrescence, right? And anthropologists would say, you know, in all cultures, there's some kind of expectation that um, becoming a mother, whatever kind of mother that might be, an adoptive mother as much as a birth mother, becoming a mother does involve an identity shift. And then we'll call that matrescence. And of course, what Jess pointed out so nicely to us is that there's something very specific when matrescence and a massive historical event that is a pandemic coincide. Either that you have, you have gone through something highly specific, um, and that all of us are going through something remarkably specific and living through what is an open-ended historical event that still doesn't really have a name. You know, will we come out of 2020, 2021 with the name pandemic still attached to the event we live through? I'm not sure. I'm located in the United States where we also have a massive democratic crisis and a very visible uh, Black Lives Matter movement, um, it's not clear to me what the event uh, is going to be, what is going to turn out to be at the end. Um, so when I think about what the pandemic might have highlighted and what histories we want to might, might want to bring forward, I'm struck by several points. One is um, the pre-industrial history of that moment when work, work and home were co-located. Right, so there's this inc an incredibly rich pre-industrial history of the co-location of work and home before the arrival of that private sphere that Wendy pointed us to. That seems like an incredibly rich history to revisit. Um, but I would actually suggest there are two other histories that might matter more. One is the history of home work, that is to say of home working, which predated industrialization and continued through it, and that we might really want to notice has historically been massively underpaid. Right? This is a vulnerable, insecure form of work. Um, so that's the first point, a long history of homework, right? of um, you know, women in tenements stitching uh, shirts in the late 19th century and sending their kids back to uh, the middleman um, and earning a pittance, that kind of work. And the other, I think, really salient point here and that Jess's observations pointed us to is the collapse of formal and informal childcare networks. Right? That, that if this massive domesticity to which we've all been sequestered is a very dominant feature of the here and now, just as much is what's suddenly disappeared. And that is those formal and informal childcare networks. And what that points historians to, I think, is um, the need to swivel away from the sort of mother baby dyad as our self-evident object of concern to a much richer tapestry of um, different mothering figures. Right. Uh, enslaved men and women, domestic servants, childminders, nannies, um, aunts, grandmothers. And so we have, we have uh, from Patricia Hill Collins, the uh, wonderful black theorist in the 1980s, the term other mothering, right? That is to say, uh, we can think there are senior women and relatives who are participating in mothering work. Um, and from Collins, I think we have theoretical traditions that have terms like delegated mothering. Right, that is to say, when those relations are contractual. Right? Think of 19th century servants being paid uh, to look after a white woman's child. And that kind of insight, right, bringing other mothering and delegated mothering into the picture also pluralizes our notion of, of mothering at all. Right? That it gives us, I think, a very necessary circumspection about generalizing about mothers. Um, and it sets the here and now in a much longer um, historical context that includes the British Empire, um, that includes the racial violence of the transatlantic slave trade, right? that includes many different kinds of people doing a whole range of different kinds of mothering labours and often not 
sharing the same kinds of self-interest. And that seems like a really important thing to keep on the table as people are um, isolated in their homes, uh, in their original identities in some sense in the here and now. So I think I'll stop there. I don't want to talk too long, but I'm, I'm, as you can already hear, I'm really thrilled at the way bringing together a journalist and a sociologist and a historian and a policy-oriented quantitative researcher just opens an awful lot out in terms of thinking about what we, how we might think about mothering as work and mothering and work uh, here in 2021. So thank you again, Shani, for making this happen. Thank you, Sarah. Um, the, as a quantitative researcher, or at least somebody who was trained as a quantitative researcher, one of the things that I was told by a rather smug statistician once was that the plural of anecdote is not evidence. And I think your book uh, makes a really good counter argument to that. Um, I, I really appreciate at the end that you mentioned um, other mothering. One of the things that really struck me in your book was how artificial a world we created by expecting people to move out to the suburbs and mother on their own and not as a cooperative. And that kind of mother-baby dyad is really a product of a certain historical moment. It's not natural or normal. And I think what's really interesting is that the isolation people are feeling with COVID right now, even people who aren't mothers, makes that really salient. And it makes it uh, something that you can experience and empathize with in a way that maybe you couldn't before. Yes, and what I love about that comment, Wendy, is of course that what that points us to is a whole 20th century scholarship created by sociologists mm -hmm. that was interested in tracking exactly that historical phenomenon. So it's a sort of perfect segue to, to bring in uh, our, our sociologist on this, on this panel. Yes, Shani, over to you. Great, thank you. Um, that's so exciting and I, uh, really want to uh, thank, first of all, uh, Jess and Sarah and Wendy for um, really coming on board for this uh, conversation that's, you know, I've literally waited for, for a year. <laughs> it's a year ago that we were planning uh, to have this conversation, so that's really exciting. Um, and um, my own work really chimes in with uh, both what uh, Jess said and Sarah said and um, I think Sarah and I had a, an early uh, conversation um, already more than a year ago, I think over email, where I think we both thought about our work as work around living motherhood, yeah, the notion of living and doing motherhood. Um, Sarah is a historian, I'm a sociologist and a media scholar. My interest is really um, living motherhood at the current moment, and for me the current moment is particularly a moment of neoliberalism, among other things. But I want to speak briefly about how, uh, in a similar way that Sarah has done for her book, how my book, Heading Home, uh, Motherhood Work and the Failed Promise of uh, Equality, which I wrote before the pandemic and was published in 2019. Um, and thinking with the book about what might it offer for this moment, and particularly the moment of the pandemic, um, as we are learning about how, as just um, mentioned already, women are uh, hit the hardest in so many realms, including uh, the, the realm of waged work, where very alarmingly now women are, uh, millions of women are being either forced to cut substantially their working hours, scale back 
um, as well as uh, forced altogether out of the workforce. And my own book deals with this group of women who are privileged women, who are uh, highly educated women uh, who left paid employment, were previously in professional jobs. Um, there were teachers, social workers, engineers, bankers, lawyers, accountants. Um, I uh, interviewed a range of women, all based in London. Um, and um, although they are a, a minority group, first of all, now number-wise, are a larger group, very alarmingly, uh, not just these privileged women, uh, mothers, but um, mothers of, uh, uh, in lower socioeconomic groups have, have been hit uh, even harder. Um, and I was interested to kind of situate and think about their experience of living uh, the workforce uh, amid uh, a, a climate that champions women staying in the workforce, you know, becoming a successful um, 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 woman and mother, uh, what kind of Angela McCrovey as a feminist scholar is called kind of embracing this or embodying the new sexual contract, this idea that um, you can do both seamlessly and in a uh, and, and fulfill yourself. And I, I, I situating this account as a sociologist within the discourses that surround us at the moment, um, particularly policy and, and, and media discourses about gender, work, and family. And um, so I want to kind of very briefly uh, talk about three things that I, there are more, but there are three things that I was uh, thinking about sharing as uh, insights or, uh, or lessons, if you will, from the from the book and from my work to this moment. The first one is that the women I interviewed um, who like many, many mothers who are now being forced uh, very tragically indeed to leave paid uh, employment during the pandemic, but the women I interviewed um, are uh, referred to often as stay-at-home mothers, yeah? Uh, there's even an acronym, S-A-H-M, SAMS. Um, and uh, this is a term that's often used to distinguish them from what we, many of us, often call working mothers. Yeah, so working mothers, non-working mothers. Um, and it, sound, it sounds trivial, but one of the things that came out so clearly from my interviews with women were, was how uh, deeply uh, problematic and indeed painful at the psychological level, but also um, really uh, troubling and problematic in terms of its material consequences, in terms of its social consequences, to name and label uh, women who are working, yeah, who are doing the work of caregiving, stay at home mother or non-working. So this sounds trivial, but I want to emphasize it both as a sociologist as a media scholar, because um, what we call and how we name things matter a great deal. Um, and the second thing that leads me to is that all the women I've interviewed, living paid employment, um, were, you know, living paid employment is often framed, and wrongly so, as a choice, particularly for women uh, as privileged as the women I've interviewed. And to a certain extent, it's true, they made a choice. But even for those privileged women, um, this choice, the, the, the story is much more complex than it is as one of them described as a forced choice, let alone for women who don't have the choice. And yet this idea that one can choose and to leave or to stay is so prevalent. Um, in fact, it, it, even if it is a choice, um, at least at, in terms of what I found and also other researchers have found, it's a, it's a choice that's forced 
by a series of structural conditions rather than a personal um, desires. Um, conditions from toxic war cultures that are utterly incompatible with family life. And suddenly kind of working from home seems to, or some have hoped will, uh, you know, bring us the, the solution or the answer to the toxicity of work cultures, of always on work cultures. And we know already from emerging evidence that that's not the case. Um, sexism in the workplace, institutional barriers, you know, gender pay gap, paternal leave, stubborn societal norms and expectations about that women should be what uh, Rebecca Asher called the foundational parent. Um, childcare issues that have already been touched on. These are many of the structural injustices that the pandemic indeed has laid bare, yeah? And what struck me in, in interviewing and in hearing a story after a story is that despite the fact that the women I interviewed were able very clearly, and the, these are very also articulate women, to identify these structural uh, conditions that have pushed them out of workforce to making it a decision that was a very difficult decision and has very uh, profound and uh, often painful consequences. So despite this fact, they struggled at the same time to articulate this decision outside the contemporary cultural ideals that continuously individual and privatize mothering, yeah? And privatize, you know, success and privatize choice and empowerment and balance. And this relates to what you know Sarah said about this idea also of um, doing mothering alone. Um, and so the stories I've heard were stories where women recounted careers and personal trajectories um, driven and marked by ambition, by commitment. I talk about you know women who devoted years to study medicine or to become social workers or to become teachers and so on. And despite very elaborate and clear stories, at the end, they would tell things, they would tell me, you know what, ultimately the reason I left, I wasn't cut out for this type of job, you know, or I didn't have the confidence to take, or I'm not a natural, yeah? Um, I didn't have the ambition it takes. Um, so they read their failure as a personal pathology. And this is one of the kind of really deep, profound uh, paradoxes and troubling paradoxes that I'm trying to grapple with in the book. And it seems to me that in the current moment, uh, when uh, women and mothers in particular are continued to be exhorted and pressurized precisely by these cultural ideals. I don't know about you, but the amount of articles, uh, social media, what, messages, what, whatever, about uh, um, living in the moment, um, you know, building your resilience during the pandemic, find happiness in the little things, um, uh, show gratitude, be all these messages that are so embedded in our contemporary, particularly neoliberal um, cultures. What they work to do, at least, and I, I hope they do a different work now, but I doubt they do. What they work to do with the women, for the women I interviewed is to internalize the blame, yeah? So it internalizes what, what it tells you is that the problem is in you and the solution is in you. Build your work, breathe, breathe, you know, meditate, do whatever you, that needs alone um, as an individual who resolves your deficit or your, or your defect or your problem. And it really precludes the demand for equality, both within their homes, often with their partners, as well as in society more broadly. So this is something that... 
really one of the key threads and issues in my, in my book that are, seems to me ever more urgent in this moment. Um, and this leads me to the third point I want to kind of extract and suggest from my book. Um, and it's around disappointment. And I was really struck, Jess, because I read the wonderful piece that you've written two weeks ago in HuffPost about your own experience and about the experience of other COVID moms. And I was struck that you write, Jess, how um, one of the things that you feel or think that marks perhaps um, what the new moms of 2020 have had to um, practice is to absorb disappointment. And the reason I was so struck is that it's precisely how the women I've spoken to have repeatedly, if unwittingly, yeah, talked about not just absorbing disappointment, but muting their disappointment. This idea of muting your disappointment um, and colluding and muting, therefore, the contradictions that your life are caught up with. And these are the contradictions really of capitalism. Um, so they wouldn't say anything to their partner, although they bore the brunt of uh, house chores, even when, and I should say, even when these both uh, partners worked full, full time and even when women were the breadwinners, yeah? They didn't say anything. They muted their disappointments. They didn't say anything to their employers facing um, discrimination, being penalized for not being able to be the ideal worker, you know, the always-on worker when you're having caregiving responsibility. They just got, got on with it. How many, you know, this idea of get on with it, don't make a fuss. Um, and they internalized this um, really sinister messages, I must say, of keep calm and carry on. Um, and um, it, it's a message around us that is, has been so popularized, you know, harking back to the Second World War and kind of re-defrosted, as it were, from the cultural uh, uh, freezer. And now, in, in terms, in, in relation to economic collapse, the austerity, and now the pandemic. Uh, and now all the world leaders are telling us that things will get worse before they get better, yeah? Uh, and these kind of uh, really fatalist narratives of inevitability, of patients that are particularly directed at women. Um, what they called in the women and for the women I've interviewed was ultimately to almost completely abandon complaint, yeah? Weighing critique in favor, or in favor, favor of compromise and adjustment to the requirement of capitalist masculine domination. So, you know, in the book, I end with a call. My conclusion is called impatience. Um, and I come back actually to the, you know, this is partly my link also with you, Sarah, as a historian. I come, I come back to the suffragist and abolitionist Lucy Stone, who back in 1855 in Ohio in the anniversary of Women's Rights Convention, uh, gave a, a wonderful, very short, beautiful speech, which is called Disappointment is the Lot of Women. And she says there how, she, she says it shall be my business to deepen the disappointment in every woman's heart until she bows down to it no longer. And so if there's one thing I feel that I can bring for my book and for my, the narratives uh, of the women I spoke to is that is, is a call to make maternal disappointment, to unmute maternal disappointment really, and to make it not just our own business as women, but crucially the business of our government really. Uh, and it's very much linked to what both of you said before about deprivatizing uh, this um, uh, uh, 
experience of mothering and the conditions of mothering. Um, and I think we're starting to see perhaps some hopeful uh, initiatives in the direction. The recent call to establish a task force in the US, uh, the Mar Marshall Plan for Moms, um, the kind of new bill in New Zealand uh, for pay equity. We see some things in this direction. I, wanna, I want very much to end my little talk on a hopeful note. Uh, but I think more, more profoundly in relation to what both of you said, to also really think about imaginative scenarios and imaginative proposals that expand our understanding of mothering um, and of maternal work, um, you know, through exactly what you were speaking before about cooperative, socialized domesticity, uh, through restructuring housing, childcare, family arrangements, and so on. Um, so I'll end on this note and hope we can also have the opportunity to kind of respond to each other. Thanks. Thank you, Shani. Um, I, we've talked about this at length before, but one of the things that I think comes out of your work in a really interesting way is that the process of individualization means that people don't pay attention to how they might organize to change structures. It's depoliticizing. And one of the things that really struck me in your book was when you were asking people what the world was going to be like for their children, they either couldn't imagine it changing at all, um, or they just thought that institutions would kind of drift along, gradually change, and something outside of them would happen, and the world would just be better for their children. And I think the, the way that women who are disappointed um, have been depoliticized and individualized to such an extent makes it really difficult for us to answer some of the questions I see coming up in the chat about what policymakers can do <laughs> because we've created an environment where nobody's even asking those questions anymore. They're just internalizing it. And sorry, you wanted to end on a happy note and I'm getting all negative. I will pass over to some of the other sp speakers to uh, respond to one another. Jess, did you want to go first? Or Sarah's unmuted herself, Sarah. Well, I, I unmute myself because uh, the genius of Jess being able to join us is exactly the invitation that she framed for us, which is what do we want to ask of policymakers? And I so welcome you just putting that question on the table, Jess. And I think it's journalists who can help us do that. And of course, the 20th century and 19th century answer, who does that? Feminist activists do that, um, right? So we, can, we might think in terms of social movements, um, hard to organize in the here and now, but absolutely not impossible as all the events suggest. And the other, if I'm, if I'm going to, I don't want to be Pollyanna-ish about this at all, but I do want to note that if we go back to the archive of the women's liberation movement in the 1970s and to black womanism, one of the, I mean, that, the story that we tell in the here and now about that movement, it's often a story about division, right? but you can go back to that movement. Um, and I'm thinking here of historian Sarah Stoller's work, and see that one of the um, points in common were very strong claims about addressing childcare. Now, this was a point in common, and it wasn't an essentializing move on the part of the women's liberation movement. And it wasn't prescriptive. Uh, it didn't say women should be mothers. I mean, the women's liberation movement broke apart that presumption, but it absolutely had a lot to say for then and for now about the childcare problem. Um, so I think that we have a, we have a history that we can draw on um, we, we don't need to be, we can be both imaginative and not entirely de novo 
when we ask the question, what do um, those mothering, what do those caring need in the here and now? And I would say we can pluralize by saying we can turn to the state. And if I was sitting in the UK with a still nominally liberal state, I might feel pretty robust about that. Uh, but we can also turn to workplaces. And I think one of the striking features of 2020, um, if you're an academic, is that there's been a lot of academic activism. There's been a lot of feminist activism on campuses, writing care manifestos um, that are really, really specific about what, people, what faculty want their universities to do. Um, I mean, I, I was part of a collective at my own university that sprang up in June. We had a statement on our provost's desk in August. We've been meeting with our provost. Uh, it's not going so well. Um, but it, th but that at that labor is absolutely happening. It's visible. It's happening. It's happening across U.S. college campuses. It's happening in some places in the United Kingdom. I'm sure people on this call know about that better than I. But I think workplaces themselves are the other place where we make we make demands. Um, I, I'll just pick up on that. If that's okay, Wendy. Uh, just to say, I I completely agree, and um, I also agree with you that there's a role for journalists and the media in this. Um, and the one thing that's missing from the higher echelons of the media um, on mass is mothers. Actually, uh, I work in an industry where women traditionally disappeared when they reached a certain age um, because it's hard. Like lots of industries like mine are very very difficult to work in at a senior level. Um, when you have children because the hours are long um, we've traditionally needed people to live in expensive areas of the country um, I've, I've, I've tried to make a big effort um, as, as a newsroom leader to, to allow people even before the pandemic to work flexible hours to work from home we have a number of people who don't who have chosen to live in other areas of the country and I think hopefully the pandemic has shown all of us that it's perfectly possible to, to run an organization like that um, I was so struck, Shani, by some of the things you said, particularly because I think the two things that you identified, which is internalizing that failure and the abandonment of complaint have become so heightened <laughs> during COVID because who is homeschooling and not internalizing failure every day? Everyone I know who is homeschooling kids feels like they're failing at it. Um, and I think that that inability to voice our complaints um, is something that's certainly not unique to mothers um everybody feels like there's somebody worse off than them in this crisis uh and and i think that's that's a real problem i just wanted to say as well um someone picked me up in the comments for saying earlier i had been simply mothering at home i, I misspoke no one who thinks you know no one who's been doing childcare alone for eight months thinks there's anything simple about doing it um i'm just sleep deprived and chose the wrong word um but I think we have to get to a point where motherhood is not seen as the responsibility of of the people who are birthing babies or adopting babies or it that that has to be the big shift and I see that in a microcosm in the news industry where um it, it has no impact on a man's career becoming a parent it's getting a little bit better, but only in more progressive organizations like mine. It still tends to have, I, I, I certainly in my career at times didn't go for big jobs because I was thinking about starting a family. I was lucky in the end, I was, I was given the editor job when I was seven months pregnant because I worked somewhere where they were willing to do that. They gave me the big job and then I went off on maternity leave. Um, but that's really, really unusual. Um, and I think we have to get to a point where it's seen as a wider societal responsibility, which I guess is, is the point at which we're all 
you know, we're all trying to reach. Thank you, Jess. Um, I, I think it's really kind of interesting bringing together all three of your points, though. Um, my, my students from gender and European welfare states are here uh, at, the at the seminar today, and um, they're going to learn this term all about everything the European Union did to get women working. And we've integrated women into the labor market that was designed for people that had full-time carers at home. And by focusing on making women like men, we didn't challenge those institutions. We've, you know, there's a reason why men aren't affected. The workplace was designed for the, the arrangements that get perpetuated in the way that Shani describes. And I was thinking about in your book, Sarah, where you talked about before you got pregnant, walking with a colleague and talking about whether you would have one or two and how it occurred to you that it was a tricky topic because men are so rarely affected by parenthood in their careers in academia. Um, there's a default economy, a default labor market, a default workplace that women were being made to enter. And I, one of the things my students for this week have read is a paper that basically says we need to change the subject of social politics away from the working mother. And I've written something recently where I said, well, I agree with that because we haven't actually paid attention to men. And by not paying attention to men, we haven't critiqued the default. And until we do, we're, we're going to come up against this. Uh, Shani, did you want to uh, reply to the others? Um, I, you know, I just wanted to say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm very much uh, aware of what you're saying, Jess, partly because I, uh, part of the women I've interviewed were themselves journalists uh, working either in broadcast. So, um, and at the same time, you know, I'm myself making uh, quite a lot of demands or calls or for, for the media and for journalists in particular to, to, to narrate things. Because it just struck, struck me anecdotally um, how, on the one hand, I think in the pandemic, uh, the stories of mother have become much more visible. There is almost kind of an inundation of stories of mothers, um, also almost on a daily basis um, on, uh, on the news. And at the same time, they are so often framed again, either with pity to this failing mother, you know, and it's not kind of even intentionally. Uh, it, it meant, it's meant to highlight the consequences of the pandemic, but it ends up with a single mother who is crying often or is just exhausted and sleep deprived. And, you know, that's what we're left with. So I, I am, you know, I am troubled, but I'm also uh, truly believing in the power and the significance of narratives, of the kind of cultural narratives that are available to us. Um, and the ways in which they shape uh, experience, but also shape structures. Um, and, and in regards to the second point, um, I, I totally agree with you, Wendy, and I saw like a little, you know, it came up on my screen, uh, an event that's taking place, I believe, next week, which is a panel on a caring economy um, with um, Madeline Manton and Lynn Siegel and others, um, and um, the Care Manifesto by... Um, colleagues of mine, including Lynn Siegel, Catherine Rottenberg, um, and Joe Little, are precisely uh, arguing that poly also policy making is where where we should start is with an economy that is an economy 
um, that foregrounds care. Um, not just, and that's that's a shift also from the debate of just, for instance, in the pay kind of gender pay gap, just in terms of giving women the same amount as men earn. No, it's looking at what do we value as a society and how this should be rewarded. And we know that women are, you know, that the caring economy and the caring sectors are predominantly feminized, and these are the low-paid also um, kind of jobs. So. I, I think it's not just about, um, and it's very much linking, Wendy, exactly to what you said in terms of questioning the default um, and undoing the default. I think the focus so much on equality versus difference, it's just always women have to be adapting to the existing structures and not thinking about changing the structures. And that seems to be a lot of the source of discontent. Um, did Jess or Sarah want to come back in? We've got I'll, I'll just in, I just would like to endorse the idea that care is a really useful rubric for us to be thinking with, um, sort of care and overwork in tandem. And then with gender as a, one of our categories of analysis, because it does seem as if we need to continually be able to, on the one hand, um, identify care as a shared social dilemma. Um, and on the other hand, we need to be able to recognize that um, women have historically, and most certainly during the pandemic, um, undertaken an undue care burden. Right? And we need to be able to sort of hold those two things in tandem. Um, I'm, I'm very struck by in all of this, the incredible normalization of the heteronormative family, right? And that, which seems even more acute in the UK and the way the UK government talks about the pandemic that it does here in the United States, it's extraordinary to me. Um, and so there's, a, there's, a, there's all sorts of fantasies about what families are, uh, not just what mothers are, but what families are that seem in play during this pandemic that are so astonishingly retrograde, you know, um, if we think of where we might have been five years ago or three years ago. Um, so one of the really interesting questions that Jess asked was what might be the long-term impact of this, this in its biggest sense? And I, I think that's a wonderful question to ask because it, what it does is it asks us to really think about our here and now, not just as something to be muscled through, but actually as something that is um, inherently socially transformative. Like one of the things that we know about 2020, 2021, is that we're living through a historical event and that in big historical events, what people choose to do is incredibly consequential. Um, that the actions that we take have uh, shape how the, um, the event unfolds. And so it matters to have a Jess Brammer in Huffington Post um, causing a ruckus on this issue. Right? It matters to have women in the right newsrooms. It matters to have voices be raised. It matters when we hear Shanice say, be wary of any rhetoric of disappointment or muting your own critique, because actually there's a long heritage of that being exceptionally counterproductive. Um, so they, and I mean, that to me, that's the optimism of the moment. It's that um, for, if you're a historian, it's an astonishing thing to live through a historical event. Um, and um, I'm permitting myself a weird kind of exhilaration in recognizing just um, how distinctive is our current experience. Just how much there is no 2019 to be returned to. 
um, there is only there's only what lies ahead and what we do to shape it and what we do to um, create memories of what it was, right? How we name it in the here and now and um, what we bring forward out of it. Thank you, Sarah. As you were talking, I was thinking about um, how at the beginning of the pandemic, I was struck by responses to people that were campaigning for climate change and how all of the changes to the economy that are needed to deal with the climate were just not possible. And then COVID came along and rapid dramatic changes are possible. That's one of the lessons that did come out of this. And it's one that I hope that we don't lose because um, one of the biggest enemies to change is the belief that it's just too hard and impossible. And we saw a beautiful example of how when the will is there and when necessity dictates, massive changes can occur. Um, Jess, did you want to come in one last time? Um, I won't actually say that we've got more time for questions, I think. Shani, did you want last word? No, I'm happy. I think we have questions. <laughs> Yeah, so I'm happy to move to, to try and address as many questions. Um, when you do the questions in the Q&A, please do remember to state your name, your affiliation and your location, as well as the question. Um, just so we know where you are and can get a variety of voices and perspectives. Um, so one of the questions early on was from Anne and Claire from Make Mothers Matter. She writes, we've been convinced that motherhood is a fundamental and change-making work. And we always wonder why the word mother remains so uncool, particularly in the context of COVID and the critical role mothers have played in keeping families, communities, and societies intact. In your opinion, what needs to happen for motherhood to achieve the importance, recognition, and respect it deserves, as well as attention from policymakers? There is some touching on that when you were talking about journalists can help. Yeah, I'm happy to jump in. I don't think it is uncool, actually, I have to say. I think, um, although I feel deeply mixed about the kind of mum influencer world of Instagram, um, I think it has helped in making motherhood cool, um, if that's what we're trying to achieve here. Um, there's a relatability about it. And um, yeah, I don't think it's uncool. I think the second part of that question is is huge. Um, and I think probably comes back to what I talked about before, which is um, needing to push it into a wider responsibility. Um, and, and in the workplace, that certainly means um, I've been I was very careful at the start of the pandemic um, even before I went off uh, to have my baby to make sure that the mothers on our team um, were able to work entirely around the homeschooling and the, and the caring that they were doing at home um, I would have done the same for um, any fathers on our team that asked for it um, but you know <laughs> funny enough that didn't happen um but we had a couple of mothers on our team who we were allowing to kind of log on for a couple of hours in the morning and then head off and do some schooling and then and log on in the evening so for me a really big shift is having mothers um in decision making positions in industries that exactly as you said Wendy can start to 
change the structures rather than ask women to constantly be trying to fit into those um, structures that we already have. And to, to your point, Sarah, I think, although I've personally found the shift to home working something that I, I, I don't love, I don't really love working from home. Um, I do think that that shift in, um, in this, in the sort of center of power and the center of industriousness being the office versus wherever you are is actually going forward going to be really, really helpful um, because we'll no longer, um, I think, have to insist on people always being in the office um, and having to always live um, where the office is. So I actually think um, that that will have been a really powerful change. Um, and again, it, that allowing, ch- changing those structures speaks to um, making the point that that it's a responsibility for everybody um, in an industry rather than just the people who are going off to have the babies. So, um, yeah, although I think it's a much, it's it's a huge question. <laughs> um, I think we hopefully have made perhaps um, some ground on some of that by virtue of what happened to us in 2020. I mean, I think there's a long UA answer to why motherhood might not be cool. And it's to do with, um, the way in which motherhood has been so sentimentalized um, to the exclusion of other kinds of representation, right? And so there's a way in which mothering looks always soft and fuzzy and um, and only that. Um, but there are other traditions that we could hook onto. I mean, there are pretty fierce uh, traditions of radical black mothering, for example. I mean, when I want to feel angry and fierce about motherhood, the tradition I go to is, is radical black writing, uh, and queer writing around maternity. And there's a whole tradition there to tap into if we want to feel that there's a fierceness um, or radicalism uh, about motherhood, that it's not just sort of cozy and small C conservative. Um, and I think these are very, um, I would also say that, that the other part of that uncoolness is that um, there's a real sneer directed at unproductive labor. Um, I mean, when I first started writing my book, I, my, one of my concerns was, was that the topic was going to be too conservative for feminists and um, too radical for mainstream historians. I worried about absolutely falling between two stools. And I've had to learn actually to be quite judicious in how I present what I do to different kinds of audiences because there's so much to disarm when you walk behind the word capital M mother. You know, there's so much cultural baggage attached to that um, a- across many different quarters. And, um, and, and to go back to Shanice, that's quite, I quite like the notion of care and thinking about because care is so much more readily seen as a verb, seen as, a la- as labor, seen as activities. Whereas it often seems as if when we talk about mothering, we, get de- we devolve very quickly to identities. Uh, sentimental identities and, and we lo- or ideologies of motherhood and we lose mothering as work you know um, and mothering as one set of activities that could be cool or not being undertaken alongside a whole other set of activities in any in any one life life um can I just come in there to say that it, I wonder if one of the upsides of 2020 is that we will lose some of that sentimentality um because nobody could possibly see the experience of mothering through 2020 as sentimental or fluffy or easy. It's tough um, and there's been some heroic activity by mothers. And I think actually I have to say that portrayal, that has been the case in the media portrayal of mothers who have struggled through 2020. So, you know, maybe that's one of the good things. 
Just to pop in quickly from a policy perspective, um, one of the problems with policymakers is that they want to be the most competitive knowledge-based economies in the world. They want to be competitive and they have to figure out how to make sure that enough reproductive work happens. But the incentive for policymakers is to make sure that the most productive people are productive. So there's always an incentive for policymakers to stratify and try and reallocate care to less productive people. And that is always going to be a real tension when you're trying to get that work recognized because it's not really in policymakers incentive set to, to want to do that. Um, yes, Wendy, but I think, you know, the, the, the so-called productive sphere is productive because there is a whole sphere, invisible sphere of social reproduction. So um, it's not in the interest of policymakers or the interest of neoliberal economies to have, you know, the sphere of uh, production, um, which is dependent, you know, fundamentally on this whole kind of army of um, mothers, other mothers, delegated mothers um, that, that facilitate the smooth operation of the productive sphere. So whilst this will be, um, you know, undone, and I think part that I'm very passionate about visibility, you know, about making this invisible uh, infrastructure and invisible um, visible and um, through media, but through other forms as well. And I think you're right, Jess, also back to your point, is that one of the things that perhaps the pandemic has done is that it's made, it's made these, um, the, the, the work of mothering so visible and how, how difficult it is. Um, and the, by work of mothering, I'm very much kind of, again, in line with Sarah's point, it's the work of cleaners, you know, um, the, the, the panic on the one hand that people were in when they when the people who helped clean their homes couldn't come because of uh, lockdown, um, but also the people who clean hospitals and clean public transport and so on. Um, so it seems to me that you know that the, the very fundamental thing that um, needs to be disrupted is precisely for policymakers this kind of uh, historical division quite recent, but still of production and of the productive and non-productive. Yeah, what's less productive and what's more productive. I, I think you may have misunderstood me a little bit, Shani. Sorry. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I was, what I was trying to say was that the uh, employment policies that have been pursued by policymakers seem to have been motivated by this idea that the earlier settlement where women were excluded from the labor market and that was how social reproduction got done. This family is a separate sphere and women uh, as homemakers and excluded and men as male breadwinners was one solution to providing reproductive work. The policy logic that policymakers have been following is that actually wastes a lot of productive resources. We have all these talented women that we want to move into employment. So the, how the social reproductive work gets done when those talented women move into employment then motivates policymakers to think about reallocating that labor to less productive women, usually, often 
um, in, in, with it, lots of intersectional inequalities. The, the problem is that unpaid work, the value of it is not internalized to policymakers. So their incentive is not to actually recognize the value. But what policymakers have been doing from the EU down to nation states has been making it easier for people to hire cheap substitutes for care. So that was what I was trying to say. Not that I, I'm not agreeing with that, but the sort of choice set that policymakers have created for themselves doesn't value unpaid work. It's not taxed, it's not valued. And the whole idea was to get highly educated, highly talented, highly taxable women into the labor market in ways that then devalued the work that they were being taken away from. Sorry, just wanted to clarify that because I was afraid it may have sounded like I was saying something I didn't mean. Um, on to the next question. Uh, Lauren uh, from uh, MSC Gender Studies Department and my course, GI415. Hi, Lauren. Um, her question is to Sarah and your use of anecdotes uh, in, your, in your book. She was wondering if you could share your thoughts on this approach in light of the fact that anecdotes are often not considered scientific and more importantly, that women are often told that they are not even reliable narrators of their own lives. And she points out police not believing reports of violence, doctors not hearing complaints from female patients, that sort of thing. Good question, Lauren. That's a lovely methodological question, isn't it? And in fact, um, when, I, when I wrote the book, I uh, was so aware of that as an outstanding question that I wrote a note on method at the book end that was just was for those readers who were kind of interested in the in the methodology that I was uh, performing uh, through the book. Um, can anecdote be data? I mean, oh, clearly I think so uh, because I, and I think so in part because if anecdote isn't data, then there are immense swathes of human experience that are beyond analysis. And I refuse that idea. There is no history of slavery. There is no history of maternity actually. Um, the question is simply how, how do we turn, uh, how do we make anecdote into data? And um, there's a, there's a, I mean, we can go back to the 18th century if we want to find work that has used anecdote as data. I mean, this is not a novelty on my part. Um, the second question you ask is to do with um, whose voice counts and um, who's believable. And, and I suppose if you're a historian of the of ordinary people, as I am, and of social experience, your presumption as an interpreter is that is that the voices of ordinary people count. Um, so that issue of authority is not one that I I deal with head on here. Um, it strikes me that where it, that issue of authority most comes up in our discussion so far is in terms of Shani's discussion of the internalization of certain kinds of identities and authorities. Right? The ways in which the women that she interviewed um, did not give themselves the authority, in fact, to trust their own um, responses to the situation and re-narrated them into these incredibly unhelpful uh, cultural scripts. Um, and that's actually a very poignant part of her book I found as a reader. Um, so I'm gonna actually maybe, Shanee, that um, thinking about authority in here and now is a good question to ask of, of you and of sociologists. So Sarah, what do you mean by, I, I understand what you meant, you know, the, about 
authority over here and now in relation to maybe just to rephrase your question to me. I, I can jump in and maybe try and yeah. answer. I can tell. I, I think you you interviewed people, so you yeah. were, you were making people you you were treating people as reliable narrators. Of course, <laughs> how how else? Yeah, but but women are often told that they're not reliable narrators, and you also in your book pointed out, you know, you you didn't aim for a representative sample. You weren't trying to mimic sort of quantitative representative data. What mm -hmm. is the value of the data that you were able to collect, which was personal experience? So that was what you were getting at, wasn't it, Sarah? Or yes, and actually, I'll, let me add something in here uh, that might give us all a useful context, which is um, something I've learned as much actually from historian Helen McCarthy at Cambridge just from my own research. So Helen wrote a book, I mean, it would be wonderful to have Helen here. Helen wrote a book called Double Lives that's a history of working motherhood in Britain. Uh, it's a narrative history uh, that starts in the 19th century and comes all the way up to the present. And it really charts um, a history that is useful for us, uh, interested in the topic, and is of use to policymakers. I mean, I hugely recommend it to, to you all. One of the points that she makes in that book is that it take, it's not until the 1970s that women's experience as mothers is validated and enters the public sphere. Right? So it's not until the 1970s that you actually have mothers Effective, speaking out and affecting public policy. That is not to say that women didn't have opinions before that point. It's not to say that public policy didn't hugely shape working mothers' lives before that point. It absolutely did. But it's the 1970s with the women's liberation movement, but not only due to the women's liberation movement, that you see that authorization, the giving of authority to mothers to comment on their own experience and to make demands. And of course, we, we know that this was seismic. Um, you know, the Equality Pay Act being one good example of the ways in which um, women claiming authority and, and having certain kinds of authority ceded to them really shifted what was possible politically and, and publicly. Yes, I think also, if I can say, I think it's also a question of what do we consider, you know, um, authority, because there's also, you know, changes that occur at the community level, not necessarily. So if, if, we, if by this we mean that they're being given authority by um, the state, I understand the question, but I think there's also, you know, there's different contexts and levels of authority. And again, you know, referring to the very rich history of uh, writings on black motherhood, uh, we know of, of you know, of, of their voices being authorized, um, not by the state, absolutely, but, you know, within their community, but, uh, and also instigating fundamental and crucial changes. Um, I think back to your question, um, I suppose the reason I did not understand it to start with is that because of kind of also the, the tradition I grew up as a sociologist of that always kind of really um, um, accept the narratives of people in the way, you know, it's not about the truthfulness or whether they are, um, they're valid for that, for the very act of narration is an act of accounting for one's life. And it's an act that is fundamentally an act of, um, um, again, accounting for your experience. And, and my role as a sociologist, as an interviewer and as an ethnographer is, is recognizing this account as an account that is, valid and that is um you know it's not about it's not i think it, it would be very troubling to 
And, and I think part of the intervention of us as researchers is precisely to bring these narratives against the unbelievability and the questioning of women's narratives, you know, and, and it goes a long tradition in relation to, of course, autosexual violence and the whole kind of idea of unbelievability that my colleague Sarah Bonet Weiser is working on. Um, so to me, the kind of uh, my ethical uh, commitment as a researcher in bringing these narratives, it's not the idea of giving voice, it's the idea of um, really attending to these narratives with uh, an ethical commitment for, their, for, what's, for, for their, the way that they account for authentic lived experience and trying to understand them beyond the individual. So that's the kind of what is the collective story is telling us about uh, the moment and about uh, also potential changes. Um, so yeah, I suppose that's that's where my um, the perhaps slight puzzlement uh, was um, because I think it's you know and I and your your book Sarah is very much doing exactly the same is you know also in your kind of digging through these kind of um, un, untouched archives and bringing those voices of mothers from uh, across. Uh, history to without this kind of I think this is in itself the act of intervening against the kind of uh, questioning of uh, the voices of authority and and you're writing in the beautifully in the beginning of your book how you kind of you know you're as a historian the archives are fundamentally you know the archives of war and the archives of important events that are male uh, predominantly male archives so the very act of uh, attending and, and documenting and recognizing these narratives is in itself to me kind of also authorizing them already. Can I just jump in for a quick second? Um, one of the things that's interesting is we're talking about policymakers and policymakers don't approach the world like a sociologist. Policymakers are interested in why people do what they do and how they can make them do what they want them to do. And in that sort of way of thinking about the world, there is a truth and there is um, a certain kind of knowledge that policymakers want that isn't the kind of knowledge that is being presented in, in your works. And how do, we, how do we confront those different ways of knowing? How do we confront those different perspectives? And how do, how do we talk across that chasm in understanding of how we understand the world and know it and, and should know it, especially from an ethical perspective. Um, you know, as somebody who really was trained to help policymakers understand why people do what they do, um, it took me a long time to get to the point where I realized how disempowering it was for the people I was studying, because I was presuming that policymakers should be changing their behavior. But the, the thing about feminist research is that it has often moved very far away from a naturalist scientific model of knowing. And then that creates problems of communication with policymakers and relates to a question one person has here in the chat, which is, you know, when we don't have the data for something, policymakers, um, uh, it falls out of focus. This is from Eugenia Lewis. How do we challenge that? And 
that is the million dollar question, Eugenia, and it's one that I pose to my students over and over and over again, because I'm hoping I'll get an answer. Um, Wendy, can I ask a question of you in light of that, which is as someone who's worked then with policymakers, what um, impression do you have of their own sense of themselves as historical actors? And by that, by that I simply mean, um, do you think that policymakers in the here and now understand that we're living through a historical event, which necessarily means that the world will be different and that there are the, the, the terrain of the possible um, is not the terrain that they had inherited. It's not only the terrain that they thought they were in. I mean, is there any lively sense that the kind of conversation that we're having could be brought to bear on how they are thinking about the world because the world is necessarily changing? I, I'm not sure I can answer that question because I haven't talked to policymakers so much since the pandemic started. Um, I, I was busy being head of department and dealing with all the shifts. So I don't really know what, um, what people's mindsets are. Um, but based on the interviews that I hear um, on the radio, I think it's really hard to climb outside of your paradigm. And we've got a situation where we're going to have a perfect recipe for arguments for austerity again when we get out of this, just like 2008. And um, when you're in a crisis mode, often lots of things seem superfluous. And one of the things that's really shocking is that the European Union um, has basically stopped talking about gender for the past couple of years because there's been so many financial crises. So the crisis might actually cause a narrower focus rather than a broader one. But I don't know because like I said, I haven't really been that, that much of a policy butterfly. Um, Wendy, I was just going to say, as someone who's um, been following that side of things pretty closely for work, I, I would agree with that. And I think, ironically, as you say, the crisis has meant that policymakers have been firefighting um, and, and have become quite myopic about the day-to-day. -day. And um, it's refreshing even for someone who is in the day-to-day -day in terms of covering the policymakers to step back and have this conversation. I don't think there's a lot of these conversations going on um, because there's just such a huge amount of day-to-day -day firefighting to do. Um, and, and when you were asking about how we can change some of that and bring in some of that an anecdotal data um, into policymaking decisions, I said at the start that at HuffPost we think about elevating voices and I think that that that, that, that is part of it. It's about, um, Certainly in, in, in the job that I do, anecdotal data and anecdotal sources are as important to us as document sources. And I think where Me Too exploded all over society, it certainly set off a grenade in the journalism industry. There's a brilliant book written by the two female journalists that exposed that story and brought down Harvey Weinstein called She Said. Um, and that is absolutely about how they did that with women's anecdotal stories. That was that was like Watergate, but with no documents. They basically 
all of all of the documentation there, um, all of the source material there was um, anecdotal stories from women. So I think that 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 showed actually that um, stories can be told, stories can be proven if you believe women's anecdotes. One of the things that's interesting is um, really uh, one of the things that I always notice about journalism is that stories that stick with me always begin with an anecdote. They often tell a story to kind of situate things. And it's amazing how that creates a really nice way of kind of hooking the rest of the information in the story in a way that, that makes it understandable. And I've always wondered why we don't do that more in academic writing um, and I wanted, I wanted to say, just to follow, just from looking at the very busy uh, Q&A, how, how I'm struck time and again it, when, when the topic of mothering comes up. It's just, you know, how people, it, it's they're full of anecdotes or what we call anecdotes, you know, people kind of sharing their experience. And I think um, it's also really valuable to reframe our thing, you know, perhaps anecdote has a bad name you know it's kind of has this kind of uh connotation of of um trivial insignificant uh, almost kind of you know um whereas i think you know these are account of lived experience these are um people's accounting for their lives um and um i haven't worked a lot with policymakers like you did wendy but one thing that did struck me with work i did with um the UK um, government for uh, gender equality before and the UK cabinet is how almost um, every um, um, meeting started with, you know, someone from the team, from their team, starting with a story about their child or their partner or their... So, you know, we talk here about policymakers, but these are also human beings um, that are often themselves having, you know... Um, uh, you know, are necessarily themselves have their own mothers or had mothers, um, and um, many of whom have some caring responsibilities and so on. Uh, so I think I, I wish and hope that these kind of conversations can also um, facilitate a more kind of dialogic relationship rather than thinking about us here, academics and journalists and policymakers out there. Although I know, as you say, that there is a chasm and it's not always a kind of an easy uh, relationship and dialogue. I, I think um, Sonia Livingston has uh, suggested that perhaps we've stretched the word anecdote a bit um, and it seems to be capturing the whole of qualitative research, ethnography and participatory research. Um, Quite right, but I think part of it is because this idea that qualitative methods are, are not rigorous was the, the kind of um, linchpin for the discussion rather than calling all of those anecdotes. Um, but it did strike me when you were talking, uh, Shani, that you know, anecdote in other circles might be feminist consciousness raising. And uh, that, that seems to have fallen out of fashion. So I'm, go ahead, Sarah. Well, I, I mean, I suppose the other point that might be worth making is that this is a moment about which we need to create research. Um, 
if we're going to go to policymakers and make demands or go to workplaces and make demands, it helps to do so with claims about expertise. And we can make those claims in the way, um, in part through the authority of personal experience, but we can also make them on the back of research. And I, I, my, I have a colleague, Jessica Calarco here at Indiana University, who has done a survey of academic faculty and staff about their living and working conditions through the pandemic. And without doubt, that was the most uh, powerful thing that we could put on the desk of our provost, where we could say, oh, your story about senior white men helping out their junior colleagues during the pandemic actually is um, not useful because we can't generalize from it. What we're finding is that across the board, faculty are increasing their work on teaching by 40%, their service by 30%, and those who are caregiving are on top of that also providing care for children at home. And so when we did that, we could say this fond story that, that people who don't have caregiving responsibilities and who are often men are sort of helping out or taking doing more than their institutional fair share in order to help those poor, slightly failing caregivers. We could just take that apart. We could absolutely dismantle that story that was circulating among our administrators. So I, I guess that's in some ways a plea for Chinese field, right, of, of scholarship about the here and now that, that will arm us as we go out and um, make arguments in the in the future. Because we're not going to, it's clear that we're not going to, <laughs> you can, by enactment of mothering about to happen. <laughs> yes, you can. Um, we're not going to solve the issue of the pandemic within the pandemic. But we, we, we do need to come out of the pandemic with very trenchant demands about recuperation, I think. Um, and that we, we can do best when we have um, collective anecdote data uh, on what has actually happened. Right. Um, so that when we, in other words, when we map, when we wed the opening anecdote to uh, research and its interpretation. I'm looking at the clock and I can see that it is 7.30 already and I have been terrible about putting forward all of these wonderful questions here. Um, there are a range of questions which I think it would be really tricky to answer quickly, uh, but offer really good food for thought. Um, Eileen asks, um, is saying she can do it all problematic and unfeminist? What are better ways to support mothers? Um, some people are asking for comments on labels such as tiger, dolphin, I've not heard of dolphin, um, and others and the associated pressures that come from adjectives that are attached to mothers. Uh, lots of questions about what policymakers can do. Helena talks about how we can uh, convince policymakers to socialize care in the way Shani says. Um, just fantastic questions, questions about refugee mothers. Um, and uh, uh, books you would suggest for a researcher studying migrant mothers in care. Lots and lots of questions. Um, I'm sorry I, I wasn't able to get to them all. Um, one that might be quick to answer if anybody knows anything about migration and mothers that you want to throw out and suggest maybe we could uh, finish it and people can accept my apologies for not getting to questions faster. Anybody want to throw out a, a book suggestion for somebody interested in migrant mothers in care? No? I don't have a book, but I would say that concepts like care chains mm. thinking um, is really useful in terms of, of um, 
putting that notion of other mothering in, in a wider field that includes um, stories of migration. Thank you. Um, the care chains, um, there's the, it's, it's a little bit dated now, but it's related to global care chains. The Barbara Ehrenreich and Arlie Hostchild Global Woman is, is a nice, uh, a nice foray into that topic. A little bit dated, but still conceptually very interesting. Um, but I think we need to close now. Thank you all um, for attending. And uh, I hope you found the discussion illuminating and uh, I hope I get to talk to some of you more about it soon. <laughs>